On this week's Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about diversity and inclusivity. We'll talk about visible diversity as well as invisible diversity and what the difference is between the two. Diversity is one of these things that's high on most companies' agendas, yet it still seems to be a problem for many industries, not just the advertising industry. So stay tuned as we talk about diversity on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Marketing, where we'll be talking about diversity, equity and inclusivity. I'm delighted to be joined by Carolyn Rogers, who's client partner at Cara. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Dave. Good to be here. Great to have you. I'm also delighted to be joined by Alison Kowser, who's a co-founder of East Coast Bakehouse. Hi, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? Good. And also delighted to be joined by Jared O'Neill, chairman of Amoric Research. Hi, Dave. Hi, thanks. Um, thanks, everyone, for joining me. First of all, how's everyone getting on? How are is, are we feeling positive? It seems that the nation, Jared, probably good to start with you, your background, the nation's mood seems to have lifted. How are you doing? How's everyone doing? How's life? Well, I think um, the way I see it, the world of marketing um, is pretty well aligned with consumer spending, which, of course, is driven by consumer sentiment in the short run. And at the moment, fortunately, sentiment is all pointing in a positive direction. So I think we're we're looking towards uh, the strong second half of the year that we were all hoping and praying mm-hmm. for at the start of 2021. And it certainly seems to be gathering momentum. You mm-hmm. see it in car sales. Of course, you see it in the housing market. But you see it in retail. You see it in even hospitality. So mm-hmm. I think at the moment, for Forecast or expectation for a, a good, strong second half in 2021, compensating for some grief we've been through is on is on schedule. Yeah, hopefully. And Caroline, I know how our business is, so I'm going to pass you on that one. But Alison, how's business for you? How are you getting on? Business is good. Um, I think the real challenge in terms of emerging from COVID is the sort of the difficulty in understanding where consumers are at mm. in their head and and where they're going to jump on lots of different decisions. So I suppose in the food business, we're looking at issues like where does a consumer fit in indulgence spectrum versus the health spectrum? Mm. You know, do, do they want to change their lives and be really healthy having seen what COVID has brought? Or actually, uh, do they think they deserve a treat and, and want to indulge themselves? And you know, they're the kind of real questions around consumer behaviour, I think, that are going to be really interesting mm. over the next year, year and a half as they start to work themselves through. And as marketeers and as business people, that's what we really need to understand. Mm. So hopefully Jared's working on all of that, that he can produce research to, to tell us all how it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully. I love Because I always struggle with these trends. I have to look at trends. And then on the one hand, we are super fit and, and going to the gym. And then on the other hand, we're on course to be the fattest nation in the world in 20 years time. So <laughs> I never know which is true. But anyway, um, thanks for joining me. So we'll crack off. Carolyn, you wrote an article. It's in today's Irish Times and it's talking about invisible diversity and it's the idea that there, when we think about diversity, there's diversity that we can spot very easy. So that's the visible diversity in terms of gender and ethnicity and that kind of thing. But actually, the one that's harder to spot and that is equally important is invisible diversity. So can we start off there, Carolyn? Talk to me a little bit about that and uh, just, you know, give me give me your thoughts on that. Something that occurred to me, and I, I've read a fair amount about it, that, you know, quite rightly, companies are really looking at the obvious diversities we can see. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, it's it's helping on the bottom line. It's, it's doing all the right things. And that's absolutely right. But I think where we may be falling down is that we're not looking at, if you like, diversity within diversity. So the innate skills that everybody has that we don't necessarily see at first hand. So that, you know, it's capabilities. And these may have been brought about by life experiences. You know, we don't take into account that people have, I don't know, traveled, for example, Mm -hmm. is just one thing, you know, and, and what does that bring to the party, which, you know, we're not 
we're, we're so set in our ways of saying, what have people got on their CV? And people don't write down these things. Mm. So I think it would be, um, it's beholden to us all to start actually diving into people and, you know, going back to Alison's point about, you know, consumer behavior and things like that. This is all part of that. I think we need to be broader in our definition of diversity. Mm. It's a good point. I never really thought about it. It's obvious when you think about like visible and invisible diversity. And we, we'll get into this. I think diversity is something that we talk quite a lot about. All businesses talk quite a lot about it. And yet, there's not enough done on it. So maybe solving the visible diversity is an easier one because it's, it's it's more visible and pronounced. And we can, if we can figure that out, maybe we've some hope of figuring the other things out. But the issue of diversity is one of those things. It comes up quite a lot when, when we, we've done, I think we've done about 50 of these podcasts and it comes up quite a lot. And when you think about it, there can be a bit of skepticism about these things. So on the one hand, it's sometimes thought of as kind of corporate altruism or moral compass for companies, but it's actually far from it, Carolyn. And in the article, you talk about the fact that it makes business sense to have diverse backgrounds. And again, it seems obvious when you think about it, but like the kind of championing of diversity and those kind of things, they could be seen as something that's over there that we just do it with your program. But you say it makes a huge difference to the bottom line, Carolyn. So can you just talk yeah. to me about that for a sec? Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of evidence from the likes of uh, McKinsey and, and, and Summers and people like that who Basically, I mean, you know, for example, in the UK, for every 10% increase of gender diversity, EBIT rose by 35 so, you know, it, it, the proof is there. It's not just actually necessarily in business, but if you look at things like juries, if a jury has is selected and, and, and is representative of more diverse perspectives, they tend to deliberate better and there are more, there are better outcomes from, from their deliberations, mm. you know. <laughs> I think it's common sense. You're going mm. to get better results if you have more points of view in the room. Dave, you and I sat in numerous brainstorms. We've we've done them ourselves this year, mm. where you know when a not representative of the target audience mm -hmm. quite often. You know, if they, we're talking to eighteen to twenty five year olds, why do we think we know them yeah. any better than they know themselves? And for the people in the room are quite often cut from the same cloth. Basically, we're carrying out, a, I suppose, an exercise in confirmation bias, mm. you know, and it's the same as our Twitter feeds. We only follow the people who agree with this. Yeah. And I think I think that in itself, we have to challenge that in ourselves. We mm. have to go out outside our comfort zone, I suppose. Yeah, it's a great point. And again, you, you say common sense. We all know it's well used, um, but like common sense isn't all that common that we know in lots of cases. So, Jared, I'm going to jump to you here for a second. I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Ray Shearer, and it was about it was about um, this kind of diversity and background diversity and how, particularly in corporate Ireland, there's too many no disrespect to accounts, but there's too many financial people, left brain think thinkers running companies and they are wonderful people. It's a wonderful profession, but they are cut from a certain type of cloth and we have enough of those people already. So from your point of view, how big an issue do you think this is in business? So the question would be how, how similar people are and how accounts are taking over the world and how we're kind of less, I suppose, we're more risk averse, that kind of thing. Is that a big issue or is it just it's unrepresentative of what's going on? I think it, it, it is a big issue, but I suppose I've been around long enough to maybe make the remark that it's been a big issue for some time. I, mm. I studied economics back in the 80s a long, long time ago with uh, Professor Tony Atkinson, who invented the Gini coefficient for measuring income inequality in societies. I took the module in, on the, in the economics of inequality is where economists interested in inequality back then, the ones with the heart anyway. And one of the things that we found was that from an economic perspective, having a bias against certain people who may
may have the talents that you need is actually bad business. It's actually bad for business. And I think that what we're saying here is that the context for this at a societal and a business level is that uh, an absence of diversity makes you vulnerable. Mm. It actually is bad for business. It potentially harms, uh, if you want to use all the old metrics, shareholder value or growth or profits, if you have too much of a, a left brain or left hemisphere uh, cohort in your in your workforce um, or just the wrong balance uh, in terms of access to different life experiences, skill sets and aptitudes and and, and competencies, then you are going to be at a disadvantage versus your competitors who are more open to diversity. So I always prefer the plain old economic argument that uh, if you're actually biased against people for whatever reason that actually harms your business, then more fool you. And I guess the reverse. I mean, you don't want a, you don't want a company full of anything. You like, I'm not saying left brain is bad. You don't want a company full of right brain people either, because you no. know, like that's not good. So you want to have you do want to have a balance, like anything else. You need a mix and a balance of different things. Alison, I'm going to just jump to you for a second here, because in Carolyn's article, she talked about and she just mentioned it there. She talked about unconscious bias. Um, and unconscious bias is a really tricky one because. Just by definition, we're not aware of it. And it's not that we consciously we consciously kind of bias against things. There's things that we do and we're not even aware of it. That makes it really tricky. I think when I look at the ad industry, I, I see it as a real problem because, Carolyn, you talked about this before. There's this kind of group think we, the, the people are pretty the same. They're from the same type of social backgrounds. And there is this idea that, you know, I'm generalizing, but human behavior is that we think other people do the things we do. So, you know, when you take an advertising agency, a lot of people in their 20s are responsible for millions of, of euros in campaigns and where that money's deployed. You can see things like nobody reads newspapers. I don't read newspapers, so nobody reads newspapers. I don't watch that much. Do people still watch TV? I only watch Netflix. Doesn't everyone have an iPhone 12? That type of thing. And that's quite dangerous. So, um, But it's quite tricky. So, Alison, given that a lot of this bias, how do you try and raise your consciousness of your unconscious bias, if that makes sense? I mean, I think ultimately we're all pretty much programmed uh, to be on, 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 you know, somewhere on that spectrum of, of unconscious bias. We're more comfortable with things that we're familiar with. And there's a requirement for a deliberate change then to actually change your mindset to say, right, I'm not going to employ the person that I got on really well with at the interview. And I could see myself having a point with them. You know, mm. I'm actually going to employ the person that I think will disagree with me a lot. Uh, and that's tough. You know, that's tough to make those decisions because you want a, an organization that would gel together and you want people to, to get on and all of that. But if you continue along that path, we stay exactly where we are. And, and to me, diversity uh, is difficult because diversity is all about change, because our starting point is not diverse. Our starting point is the status quo, which is uh, pretty homogenous organizations, and particularly in this country. Um, when we look at all of the levers of power that are being pulled across, whether it's politics, business, you know, whatever, whatever institutions, the status quo is not diverse. Making tough decisions to ensure that diversity will happen requires those decisions, but it requires not just putting, a, you know, almost like a some kind of a graph where we're filling in the boxes with the individuals that look like a diverse organization. It requires systemic change. It requires mm. systemic change in organizations, and it really requires cultural change. 
and they're hard decisions to make. They're expensive decisions to build, you know, to build those those new systems, those new processes, that new culture. Um, but I think, as Jared said, we have to do it because otherwise we're postponing the inevitable um, mm. and we're not building organizations that actually not just represent the people that they serve, but represent the shareholders and the stakeholders. I mean, Jared, you mentioned there that, you know, the economic model of, you know, the bottom line and, and, and accountants ruling the world, etc. But we really are beginning to see potential for not focusing purely on shareholder value, but focusing on stakeholder value. And that's a very different, broader piece that is not necessarily the left brain ruling all the time. So we've got to see the organizations reflecting that and be it, as I say, business politics. I mean, look, look at our, look at our political structure in this country. It's 22% female. Mm. We have we have one person of color in in the um, in the parliament in our, in our doll, which happens to be Leo Redker. Uh, we have we have no representative from the New Irish, twelve um, percent mm. of our population, and we have nobody in in our um, in our uh, political structure, uh, senior decision making people that you know that that not just represent that group, but just even acknowledge that group of people mm. in our country. So these are the, the issues we have to tackle head on, and they won't happen by themselves. Mm. Yeah, and. And then, dare I say, no women on the um, COVID advisory council either, um, which was, you know, mm. always quite shocking. I have some hope on this, um, and, and and it's very anecdotal, but talking to my team when I was writing this article and stuff, who are all considerably younger, I'm not sure that they're so driven by unconscious bias. I think they are more broad-minded um, and I think that they are more open to not mirroring themselves in everyone they employ and things mm. like that. I think they're just, but now maybe that's just youth. But I just mm. wonder whether younger people are, and I, you know, I'm not trying to patronize them in any way, of course, but whether they're just, they're better at thinking about this. They don't notice race so much. They, you know, they assume that women are equal. And I, I just yeah. hope that that is the case i you know i can't prove it but i i just have it's a, a sense you, you get a, you get a sense yeah and and it happens i mean i know and i'm not being patronizing with the latest generation but like every generation breaks down barriers and, and it, it just in different ways it happens but like the, the barriers and it's great to see so you do see some hope in that Alison it's a great point you make about companies that want to hire people who may challenge them disagree with them and that makes total sense now I understand why I didn't get all those jobs when I went for those interviews that's exactly <laughs> I feel a lot better about myself now I, it all makes sense Jared I'm going to give you a nice a nice easy one to tap in here machine learning um, here's an easy one for you so I watched it. Do- Some people say, you know, I read a book, I read this book. I, I tend to say I watched a documentary on Netflix. So documentaries are my, are my thing. So I watched a documentary on Netflix. It's called Coded Bias. And it, it like there's this idea that we have is that machines are infallible. Like humans have unconscious bias, but machines machines can't have. So and, and it, it works things out and, you know, you can trust the machine. But actually, when I watch this documentary, again, it seems really obvious because machines are not capable of original thought. They're coded by humans. And if you're coded by humans and humans set the, the learning codes and the hierarchy of decision making, you can build bias into a machine learning program. So it's actually a fascinating documentary. And it talks about how pretty much like very, very top line simplistically that uh, a lot of facial recognition is pretty much doesn't recognize, has trouble, uh, has trouble recognizing non-white faces. So Jared, given that business is becoming increasingly automated, and um, now we're not quite at the level where we're using AI for candidates in terms of interviews, but a lot of businesses are. And given that business is becoming very automated and AI is growing and it seems to be you know, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Do you think this potentially leads into some dangerous paths as we kind of embrace technology too much? Well, I think it, it is already uh, taking us down a couple of uh, dangerous paths, Dave. I think, first of all, 
Remember, we're talking about uh, using algorithms, uh, computer code that's informed by existing data, historical data, but also written by software engineers. Engineers being the kind of people you want to have writing your software, but who tend to you don't want to go for a pint with them. <laughs> Some of them I do. I don't want to be too um, uh, biased against the left hemisphere engineering types, but we do need them. I want them to build our bridges and uh, write our software most of the time. But I think there is something about how when as we try to, you know, a software eats the world, as somebody said, then I think we're going to need to be more conscious of the hidden biases in the software that we're using to make our decisions. And I think it's something that is a function, first of all, of better data, and we are capturing more better data. So uh, you avoid some of the in inherent bias in historical data, which maybe is skewed towards what school you went to or mm. which degree or college you went to. Um, so it's getting better, perhaps. And I can see that even in, as well, I was going to say mundane space, it's hardly mundane, but in an area like health, um, uh, healthcare, uh, some of the work we're involved in there, people are using algorithms to predict people's um, health or lack of in the mm. future, but they're being quite holistic about it. It's not all um, kind of uh, more uh, left brain kind of biases. So I think, look, software and algorithms are inevitably here, I think, for the foreseeable future. But to the extent they're trained on data uh, and written by people with a certain inherent uh, bias or skill set, then I think we need to be just more conscious of that. It's one of the, again, it's one of those hidden biases that uh, Carolyn has alluded to. Mm, yeah, it's kind of mad when you think about it. There's another more recent documentary that's on Netflix and it's it's called um, Persona and it literally gets into talking about these personality profiles and how machines are increasingly doing that for, for job applicants. And, and well, not even just job applicants, the computers are making decisions about pretty important things about whether you get a loan, whether, you know, which is whether you can buy a house and um, whether you're credit worthy, but also in terms of whether you get a job or not. And, and the thing about this, which is scary, is that a computer never has to defend itself. The machine said no. And actually what, what it throws up again is anyone who has any kind of learning disability that the computer it will pick it up actually but it will it will diagnose that as this person can't spell or whatever so if you've got some form of learning disability you know you're dyslexic or something like that a red flag will go up or actually if you're the type of person who is quite opinionated about things and kind of has high you know has high moral values about that th these tests are designed to kind of show you up as a red flag and it'll come up and go nah this person's trouble this person's not gonna you know you're you hired this person they're going to be they're going to be a world of pain for you and actually when you think about it if a human interviewed people and you know they never they never say we can't hire that person i think they're just going to be trouble they just wouldn't you wouldn't do that and you and you wouldn't not hire somebody because you thought that yeah they have a bit of a learning disability we're just not going to hire them you'd, you'd like to think that a human wouldn't do that but a machine can do that and a machine is like it's not held to account so isn't there a danger if we use Jared, I'll stick with you in this one. Isn't there a danger if we use AI and machine learning technology that once we've coded it to tell the machine what we want to look for, we end up hiring everybody who's the exact same? There is that danger. I agree, Dave. But I suppose it's back to the context I mentioned earlier, which is that if you end up creating almost a clone-like organization, you're at a serious competitive disadvantage. And all that means is that the people you reject are the people who either go on to find their own business 
and ultimately compete with you and, and defeat you, if you like, in terms of marketplace, or get hired by your competitors who see more value in them. And I see I see this particularly in a, a more in creative industries, but also in small businesses, small firms like my own, where we tend to have more of a face-to-face, one-to-one kind of process of meeting people and deciding whom we want to work with. Um, and you know, organizations, agencies tend to do that. And I think that that is an important uh, source of competitive advantage that we're mm. not relying on the algorithms because we need to hire 100, 400, 1,000 people mm. within the next couple of months. And I, so I think the bigger companies may actually be disadvantaging themselves mm. and over-reliance on these kind of algorithms. Mm. So again, so I know we were joking there about certain types of people, but like in Carolyn, like add marketing people. Marketing has a type, whether we like it or not. It's and it's not. It's a stereotype, and it's not. It's not a particularly flattering stereotype when we talk about marketing people. I was chatting to somebody last week, and they were saying they're on a, a parents committee board within their school, and it's like it's, it's like ten or twelve people, and they're all professional people, and there's one person on it. And they're just really spiky and just being really difficult. And the person said to themselves, I bet you that person works in, in marketing. And they were right. And like, you could spot them a mile away. It's just a, like, it's a parent committee board. And they're all going, what, what are our KPIs? Like, well, you, just, you know, come on. It's a parent committee board. We're talking about it's kids school rugby. Um, but we have a type. It's obvious why we have a type because we... We hire from the same grad schools. We kind of look for a certain type of person. So it's no surprise that we have a type. So Carolyn, and, and one of the things you talked about in your article was that why do entry-level positions have to be young grads? And you talk about people, you know, there's lots of people in the workplace, but is it a case that older people just don't want to do those jobs? You know, they just don't want to come into what's predominantly young, a young business like our agency, or is it more a case that the unconscious bias of the person who's hiring means that that older person wouldn't get the job. What are your thoughts on that? I think it's the latter. Um, I have I've actually been involved in recruiting at entry level this week. Um, I've done about eight interviews and some of them are were definitely more mature. And I asked them the question uh, there were two or three of them, actually, and they just didn't see it as an issue. They, they'd chosen to go down a different path to get into, you know, in, in their lives, mm. to do completely different careers, and then had come back to learning and doing, you know, going back to college and, and you know, in their 30s, felt absolutely, it didn't care at all that if, if their peer group, so to speak, would be all be in their early 20s. That didn't bother them in the slightest. Mm. They It was just they wanted to get in and they recognised that, you know, you have to work your way up. And, you know, they were... You know, they were definitely, and I and I won't go into obviously individuals for obvious reasons, but they were bringing skills that I thought were really exciting for yeah. for us from an entry level. And in the past, in a different life, um, or a different agency, I interviewed once three people in their forties for account exec roles, and uh, we offered one the job. And actually, they ended up taking another job at an entry level somewhere right. else. Um, they were they had nothing. They were returners. You know, they were they were actually in this case women who had bought you yeah. know given up work and come back and they would have been fantastic in the role mm. because they would have been calm they've got the life experience i you know mentioned earlier they would have brought something else to the role so i in answer sorry a very long-winded way of saying in answer to your question i think it's about us the interviewers who mm. have the bias rather than rather than it being an issue for, for the people applying for the mm. job mm. Uh, and just for definition old people are people who are older than me and that's the way it always has been whatever age i am anyone who's older than me is old that's just the way it was um, 
Alison, okay, that's that's yeah. Well, that, and that used well, to be. That, that, I mean, that, for some uh, of us on this call, <laughs> but, I, but I, I, I'm there. I forget. I'm one of the old people in in our agency, and I still don't feel like I'm old. But I am one of the old people. People are going to go, "Your man, that L fella, he's the strategy guy." So, um, but like, Alison, is this an issue or Jared? Open question for for either of you. Um. Like it's definitely an issue in in the advertising industry. So if if by the time you're in your fifties, you have not got a leadership position, you're gone. I don't know where these people go. There must be a room full of people who used to work in advertising, just locked in somewhere, living in the dark under bridges. Of people in their fifties and very talented people, and they just leave the industry. And you know, sometimes it, it's just good to have you have you have a bit of life experience. It's good to have a grown up in the room sometimes because TikTok isn't always the answer to everything. So, um, why is that the case? Why do people just leave the industry? Is it a problem in other industries that is kind of just I, a, people, I, I an age? There's a problem in in many other. Certainly, it's not an issue in the food industry. It's quite a you know, quite a broad expanse of experience across many companies. You know, you would generally have entry level moving right through. I, I think the issue around you know, to me, it almost brings us back to where we started around this issue of representation. So if we look at, you know, the average household expenditure uh, on a weekly or monthly or annual basis, we know that, you know, maybe 70% of those decisions are made by the female in the house. If it's, if it's mm. you know, whether it's a family car, um, the mortgage, the weekly shop, you know, all of the various expenditures. And yet that's not reflected in the marketing activities that are directed at that really important buying group. It's actually probably the other way around. It's, mm. you know, it's a reverse of that. So if you do want those voices in the room, if you want those experiences in the room uh, and that per, you know, that just that life experience, the mm. perceptions, all the soft stuff that, you know, you, yes, the research can tell you, but it can't make you feel that way. Mm. Uh, it can't bring that voice to the table that says, have we considered, you know, exactly that TikTok's not the end, not, not the answer to everything? Or have we considered how this age group live their lives in a mm. real sense, as opposed to simply doing it on a research basis? Um, and and I've always seen that there's a huge imbalance there in the advertising industry. That people who decide how we're going to market the products are not the people who are going to buy them. Huge dissonance there. Mm. And um, maybe that's worked in the past, but as the pace gets faster, as, as things are expected to be, you know, more directed, more targeted. Um, or bang on in terms of getting it right first time, not ma massive long campaigns that manage to scoop everything up, you know, over a long period of time. I think it becomes more of an issue. Mm -hmm. And I think moves from the US, which I think is really useful in this area, is the concept of uh, returnships. So, you know, we've got internships for yeah. entry level generally, but returnships for bringing people back, yeah. you know, putting in really structured processes in that, that, that re-acclimatize people to maybe the fact that the office looks different or the organization looks different than when you left 10 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever, mm. and allowing them to find their place um, and find their place in a way that, that maintains their um, all the talents and skills that they can bring back to the table and develop some new ones, of course, as well. So I, I think that's a route that Irish companies in general should look at in a much more serious way than, than viewing someone who comes back in their 40s as being a bit of a lost cause because yeah. they got bought home or they're desperate for the cash or yeah. whatever other negative connotations we, we tend to put around it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the thing um, just sort of you touched on there, Alison, was that people are, in the past, it may have worked that the, the, the people who decided what the, the advertising was going to be were not representative. But, you know, to Jared's point he made earlier, we now, we have we have stakeholders as well as shareholders. Mm. And what cons consumers walk, you know, vote with their feet or vote on, you know, on social media or whatever. So we have to be smarter about it. We have to be more representative. It's yeah. as simple as that. 
Yeah, and there's a great line, and Jared, I'm going to come to you now. There's a, uh, John Fanning used to say, he used to say, he was joking, but like, he was half truthful. He used to say, like, if you're in a meeting, nobody under 30 should be allowed to speak in a meeting when they're talking about brands and advertisers because they have no clue what they're talking about. They've no life experience. You, you can't, you, you know, it's a, you, you can't learn this in a book. It's like, you can watch 25 videos on how to, and read as many books you want on how to ride a bike. You can't do it until you go out and try it. And he said, you need life experience. And Carolyn, I know you, you actually referenced Jared in your article. And Jared, you, you talked a little bit about this before, about the fact that life experience is invaluable. But again, it's really obvious. It makes total sense. But then why do we see older people leaving the industry? Is it actually a case that, I look at it from our point of view, like the longer you're in a company with even just basic inflation adjusted pay, you just become really expensive. So it kind of makes sense to fire people off when they get, you know, you don't want, if, if you're 40 odd year old and you're, you're still at a kind of low level job, you're going to be expensive. Is that what's happening or is it a bias that we have or is it just financial? I think it's a combination of factors. What I would say is that um, some of that uh, age-related bias has certainly been there in the culture, not just in marketing, but in many other sectors. But I think it's going to have to, it is going away for the obvious reason, first of all, that by 2030, we'll be, we'll be in the 50-50 future, as I call it. 50% of adults will be aged 50 and over. Bob Hoffman always makes the point that more than half of all car sales uh, are by people over 50, but you don't see many of them in the car ads. Mm. And I think there's something there, but again, I hate to say it, economic reality, business reality, and the need, therefore, to be a little bit more attuned to the age issue. But I think there's something else, which is kind of a thought triggered by your comment, Dave, was that what we've been through in the past 14, 16 months, uh, COVID, the lockdowns, working from home, I think that's going to leave a legacy that is actually going to be much more beneficial to older employees or potential employees, Mm -hmm. uh, the returnees, as Alison calls them, which I love that phrase. And I think what that means is that the flexibility of experienced adults who've been there, done that, maybe don't have the same financial pressures as younger Mm -hmm. people, happy to work part-time, happy to be subcontracting, uh, but who can bring a skill set, uh, a network, um, knowledge, and a bit of savvy and mm-hmm. nice that kind of don't panic whenever things don't go quite the right way or mm-hmm. as planned. That makes, I think, will mean that we're going to see a much more flexible, fluid kind of workforce anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, organizations should be structuring themselves that way. Our organization is certainly doing that, my own business. And I think what that will mean is that perhaps we won't see that loss of talent or experience that you've rightly alluded to historically, that the new, more flexible workplace or workforce will actually be more conducive to actually a more diverse workforce, particularly the hidden diversity around age. Mm. So, yeah, and there's lots of, lots of, look, there's been lots of terrible things in the pandemic. It has been tough, but there's been, like anything else, there's been some positives that come from it. I think business and society will be in a better place and we'll have a, I always laugh because I think some companies talked about working from home as if it was a benefit. Like, it is, it's not a benefit. I, I'm still doing my job. I'm just doing it from, I'm just doing it from home. The, like, so that's a good thing. And you know what? I think going into the pandemic, I don't think we would have ever thought that we'd be all able to work from home at the same time. Just didn't think it would happen. And actually we said, you know, you can. So necessity is the mother of invention, as they say, but like business went on. Alison, I'm going to just come to you for a second. So in Carolyn's article, she has some stats there saying that 85% of employers think diversity is important but only 46% of companies have programs in place. So 
the obvious question is, if everybody thinks it's really important, then why are we still talking about it so much or why do businesses not embrace it more? So is it a case that they just don't know? Is it a case that, you know, it's one of these things that, you know, Jared, you'd know this in terms of what we say and what we do is often very, very different. So is it our our ideology around diversity on a macro level is one thing, but then when we try to apply that on a micro level to ourselves, we just can't do it. Why is it still the case? Why do we see this gap in terms of people agreeing with it, but not a lot of businesses kind of embracing it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's true across the whole spectrum, as I say, from political life to, you know, position of gender um, in business and, and, and whatever, that, you know, we all believe in equality. We all believe in adversity. You know, we've we won the argument, but we haven't won the reality because the structures and the systems and the processes are not in place to actually mm. support that. One of the things which I think, you know, from an Irish perspective, particularly, it makes this whole idea of diversity, making it a reality, very difficult is the structure of our businesses. So we have so many SMEs in this country. You know, we've lots of the big tech companies. We've lots of large companies that can have programs coming out of their ears. You know, they can have diversity officers. They can have board level diversity directors. You know, they can put a lot of money, effort and time into, into making, making it happen. Uh, whether they make the cultural changes or not is a different story, you know, and I think that's something that, that clearly they, they really need to address. But if you look at an SME with 15 employees, you know, they may not have that many vacancies coming up that regularly. And, and the ones that do come up, some of them may believe they don't have the luxury of, right. of considering diversity because they need to ensure that, firstly, they make the job attractive. And, and you know, a lot of people have difficulties in recruiting at this stage. Mm. They may not get. Um, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll speak for, for us. We looked for a, a very senior level appointment a couple of years ago. Um, we had 15 applications. We had one female application. Right. Uh, and, you know, as an SME, what do you do? You know, you have to make the right decision for the business. If if the mm. uh, what's available to you is not giving you a, a, a diverse answer, um, mm. what what decision have you? You know, what, what can you do? And I think that's a big issue for Irish business. That you know, we've got to we've got to have a, a pipeline coming through of a diverse pipeline in order to build a diverse business. Mm. Uh, and that's that's really crucial. And that goes way back. That goes back to society. That goes back to our education system. That goes all the way back. So it's not going to be fixed automatically. But diversity programs are a luxury for a lot of firms. Right. I think we have to be honest about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense when you think about it. Like, you know, when we think about business, you, you tend to think about the big, huge multinational businesses and, and the, the backbone of, well, certainly of, of our, the backbone of any industry. It's a small business that keeps Facebook in business, not agency business. So the small businesses make economies and that that's, um, yeah, you're right. It's hard. And um, you have to be big to have these type of programs. On you talked about this before. I mean, the ad industry, first of all, we I think we've done a good job in terms of diversity on some levels. So gender, we've done quite a good job. In our even in our company, kind of you know, we've lots of different cultures in the business. We've, we've probably done less so in terms of the, the invisible diversity, as as Carolyn mentioned earlier on. But politics is one that I find really fascinating because, as you said, it's not diverse at all. So two questions here. Firstly, why is that the case? Because um, you're talking about elected people as well, you know, the, it, we live in a democracy. So is politics hard to get into if you're not a, a certain type of person? Is there a bias in that or is it just not attractive? Because it looks like a pretty brutal job to me where you're working all the time and you're you're getting, you can do no right. I'd hate to be in government. It's a horrible job. You get no time and you're always wrong. Everyone hates you. Is it just not attractive? Is there bias in there? What could that industry do to make itself more representative of modern Ireland? And do you think quotas are a good thing? Because on that note, I think, you know, until quotas are bad in the sense that it operates against the principle of the best person gets the job, but it does fix a problem in a sense that if we can't, 
you know, forget our unconscious bias, it allows us correct that for a while until it normalizes it. So a lot in that question, but why is politics so unrepresentative of modern Ireland? What could it do to make itself more representative? And do you think quotas are a good thing? Uh, I'll start with the quotas first. So um, a lot of people don't like quotas, but they like what they do, because essentially what quotas do is they make change happen quickly more quickly than the organic change may happen. I mean, if we look at politics in Ireland, we, from a gender perspective, we're still around 22, 23% both at female, both at local and um, local politics and national politics. The, the pace of change has been absolutely glacial. Um, you know, the foundation of the state, we had one of the world's first cabinet ministers in Countess Markovic, and then we didn't have another cabinet minister for 50 years. So, you know, that's the level of, of organic change that happens in politics at the moment. Um, and, and that's the case for a number of reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm chair of an organization called Women for Election. And our mandate and our job and, and what we do is, is we work to, to support women into the political process by a number of means, mainly training. Research indicates that the, the five C's are the barriers that, that, that preclude women many, in many cases from entering politics. And they relate to things like confidence, building, you know, the necessity to, to build confidence. Uh, the culture of the political system currently, it was a system built for men and it continues to act as if it was built for men. It does not take account of the changes that are necessary to, to open the, the system up. In fact, I'm on a forum, uh, with a virtual forum by the Can Corla, which is about building a uh, family-friendly and inclusive parliament uh, and changing our Oireachtas, you know, where so that the actual Oireachtas, the Houses of Parliament, uh, the Dáil, the Shannad, uh, and the people who live and people who work rather within that can experience a more family-friendly and inclusive workplace. You know, that's what we need to do to get down on the inside of these institutions, mm. change them from within. Issues like candidate selection, for example. Yes, quotas are a fantastic idea and I'm absolutely delighted that they're, they're there in politics because it makes the parties field female candidates. But it doesn't make them field female candidates in winnable seats. You know, that's part of the, the whole process that we need to address. We see some of the, you know, internationally other countries that, that get this right and they get it right for making systemic changes. Mm. Uh, it's a bit like a 30% rule that we see in business. The culture starts to change when you see a 30% threshold uh, exceeded. And that's when you begin to change from within. And, and it will take us quotas to get there. What I hope happens is that organisations like Women for Election are redundant in a number of years that we don't, yeah. we're not required because normalisation has happened and it will, it will yeah. be completely normal to see it a female minister for finance, a female Taoiseach, uh, whatever. And, and I, clearly on gender, this is the really visible stuff on gender. Mm. But, you know, look at look at our political system in, in relation to what, what, you know, what you might term the intersectionality issue. So, you know, most people in politics are middle class. Um, mm. Remember the huge rows about what, you know, what some of our politicians wore in the chamber, you know, somebody yeah. in the polish shirt was, was deemed, you know, just not worthy. Um we need yeah. a politics that looks and sounds like the people it represents. And that's, they're the real changes that we need to make to, to bring about more respect for I mean, you've just talked about politics in quite negative terms, which is the way most people talk about it. Yeah. But someone, someone has to run the country. Yeah. And and that someone should should be people that, that actually look and sound yeah. like the people it represents. And, mm. and that's a long way to go. But again, that has to happen with really difficult decisions. So the current to get us to a 50-50, for example, on gender in the in the current stall would require 44 male incumbents to either stand aside or be ousted. Imagine that from a political party perspective to make that happen in the next uh, 10 years. Talk. Yeah, slow change. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I totally agree in quotas thing. I think they're a good thing. It's a short term 
it's not a good thing in the short term because but it has to correct it, the, the, the correction it makes is, is a good thing in the longer term so I, I agree with that Carol I'm just going to ask you a question and kind of come back into grounded in our kind of wheelhouse advertising and the industry we're in so why isn't the ad industry more diverse given it, it is a creative industry everything that we know about life is that different personalities clashes different opinions different perspectives that the more diverse the better for creative businesses that's what you want and um, you don't want group think so given we are a creative business why are we so lacking in, in diversity and, and particularly even invisible diversity carolyn do you think the industry does enough to attract people uh no i think there is in answer to your question i think it goes back to comfort zones I think, you know, the, the industry is still largely run by people who, you know, most people who are leaders within our industry have only ever worked in that industry. Mm-hmm. And so because that's all they've ever known, um, and I include myself in this, you know, it's easier to go with the familiar. Mm-hmm. And I think we expect people to come on board and that is their career. I was actually um, on with a CEO of a creative agency yesterday evening having a chat about this because she was asking me if I thought this was a good career. And I said, well, it's hard for me to say because I haven't done another career. It's not good in terms of we're not saving lives, you know, and things Mm. like that. But that I think, A, younger people don't necessarily look at jobs as careers anymore. I'm not sure they have the same, you know, it's it's a way of learning. Mm. I know people who are clients or whatever who openly say, you know, they're going to spend two years doing this, then two years doing that and, and accumulate different skills and then maybe start their own business. You know, you know, there are people leaving our business not to go into the business, but to go, to go elsewhere. Yeah. Because I think it is no longer, it's, it's not glamorous. It used to, advertising yeah. has a reputation. You know, when I started in it, you know, when God was a child, um, we went out for long lunches and crawled yeah. back into the office drunk at four o'clock and that was fine. I missed, you know? those, I missed those times. I came in just yeah, as the party was over. Yeah, call back to the office to proofread that ad that had to go go to press the next day. Yeah. 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 I missed, um, missed but, that. But actually, it was really funny. I, I recently was reading a book by Dorothy Sayers, who's a, a British author who wrote in the 1930s. She, she um, wrote detective stories, and she wrote about a character called Lord Peter Whimsey, who's a sort of monocle buffer, you know. But she herself worked in advertising in the 20s and 30s, and she wrote uh, this book about advertising. And it's... It was really shocking for me. I had to reread three pages of it because nothing has changed. Wow. <laughs> it was yeah. all exactly the same. Yeah. The politics in the politics in the business, the client wanting their logo bigger, yeah. you know, um, yeah. taking the client out to lunch. And I'm not sure that that's very appealing for young people now. So no, no I, the, the short answer is I don't think we're doing enough to make so, this. Um, and I know IAPI are in the process of making ads about this because. Everyone in this industry is finding, you know, yeah. the truth is we're finding it very hard to recruit people so, because it isn't that appealing anymore. It so, is a great, yeah. by the way, to anyone listening, it is a really good career. Well, yeah, <laughs> We really strongly advise, you know, you'll have a lot of fun in it, which is great, but you'll work hard too. Well, unfortunately, everyone listening is probably involved in marketing or interested in marketing yes. already. So it's <laughs> pre-screened. I, I had a great idea there. I, I actually agree with you. I think the industry hasn't done a great job. So I think advertising needs a rebrand and I think the industry should come together and put their heads together to actually solve this as a brief and try and rebrand the ad industry and try and make it attractive to people and and that's I happy there's a project for happy um we're nearly out of time so I just want to get open question Jer- well open Jared I'll start with you because you've been quiet for a while there so 
I think one of the best things, when we think about all these problems we talked about, the best way to enact any kind of change is to start with yourself and your team and your company and, you know, start from there. So for people listening, I always find it's hard. We talk about some, we talk about some big topics and then what's nice to be able to do is give people a little bit of kind of advice in terms of what could people start doing tomorrow? Well, not tomorrow, on Monday. What could they start doing to try and enact change in some of the things that we've talked about? What could they be aware of to try and, it starts from within. Jared, any suggestions for people listening, how they can be more open to diversity? I think one of the things that struck me, and this has come up, not just my business, but talking to uh, clients and to um, some other organizations is uh, to take advantage of the new world that we're in. I've talked about it earlier, working from home, flexible working. I spoke to a firm of engineers recently who uh, needed to hire 200 um, engineers and were planning to open an office in another country because they figured there was a bigger pool of engineers there. Then along came COVID. And guess what? They went ahead ahead and hired the 200 engineers from about 10 different countries. They're all working from home. So I'd be saying to to anyone, and this is true of my own business, we'd be saying, okay, we need more to hire certain people with certain skills. Why assume they need to be in Ireland, let alone, um, you know, able to come to our office in City West? So Mm -hmm. I think that's the really exciting moment that we're in here, that so many of the traditional barriers to recruiting, to hiring a more diverse workforce, have kind of evaporated mm. in certain industries, mm. especially ours. So therefore, I'm quite excited about the potential, and I see it already, to have a more diverse workforce even within a Amoric. Right. Yeah, makes sense. Alison, your thoughts on how we can just be, I, I mean, even from an individual level, just be, be conscious of your own conscious bias or any tips. What, what can people start doing? I mean, any tips? Um, yeah, I mean, personally, I totally agree with Jared. I think this is a moment in time. I think COVID has thrown a grenade into the middle of how we do business. And, and we... I think, you know, we just need to be careful that we don't slip back into yeah, the old way of yeah, doing yeah. things. We absolutely do, do recognize this as an opportunity, grab it with both hands and make real change happen as opposed to just talk about it, you know, yeah. because what, what's happened to us has happened by accident. Um, yeah. And it would be very easy just to allow that to be the year that never was, you know, and, yeah. and, and then slide back into where we used to be. So, so firstly, I, I think it's really important to, to make those clear, concrete learnings in, into something else. As regards what individuals can do, I, I do think there's there's a huge necessity to be self-aware on this, mm. just you know, to, to step out of yourself and, and to sit at that meeting and listen to those voices around the table, virtual or otherwise. But just take a step back and really begin to understand, are we a diverse group? Who are mm. we speaking to and where are we speaking from? And as Carolyn mentioned earlier, you know, the, the industry in Ireland is tiny. Yeah. Um, the business landscape in Ireland is tiny. Um, it's very easy to find somebody who you know mm. to work with or somebody who knows somebody who gets a recommendation and you end up then with a, an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're not quite as classist as the UK, but people still ask people what school they went to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I do think that we need to check ourselves regularly. We need to ask ourselves these questions um, probably every week, if we're honest, um, yeah. because it's just too easy to get into the mail today stuff. I suppose week in terms of what did we do this week to, yeah. you know, yeah. to to be more open or to to come from a place that's that is genuinely diverse but also you know not to look at this as a a grid that we need to fill in the boxes yeah uh, because if that's what we end up with we'll, we'll end up with a contrived scenario that doesn't work because it yeah. doesn't gel we, we have to have cultural change um that is really about making mm. sure that the whole thing works together as a culture uh so systemic change and cultural change, I think, have to be have to be have to work together. Yeah. We, if we don't, what we'll end up with is filling all the boxes in the grid, but we'll have a revolving door. Yeah, we'll have 
them all again next year because it won't have worked and and that's too hard work for everybody i think yeah absolutely yeah and I, and i hope we don't slip back into the into the old way i mean one of the things like we obviously can't because we our office is now smaller we've sublet the top floor so we, we literally can't have everyone back in this in the office as the way it used to be which is good so yeah. and i think even from my point of view like i've tried to make changes i'm doing this reverse mentoring thing as part of uh, the Dentsu global thing and it's where i get mentored by somebody who's relatively new to the business which is actually insightful it's brilliant because i'm having a, i notice i do certain things and because i think sometimes i forget that people look up to me because i'm a, a leadership position in the business and and sometimes when i go into meetings i can be quite dominating in meeting and what i've tried to do now is because and it's really for the invisible diversity i've tried to kind of shut up a bit more and i've tried to look around the room and try and see who are the people who aren't speaking and maybe try and give them and, I, and it's kind of exactly as you said it's a bit like just self-awareness and it's trying to start with yourself so um yeah so i'm positive i'm, I'm making changes which is good which is good <laughs> i'm better i'm better today than i was yesterday um <laughs> I don't know, we'll see how Monday goes um, that is it that's all she wrote we are out of time so thank you so much for joining me today Jared, Alison and Carolyn thanks and thank you see you take care no problem have a good weekend everyone yeah, bye thanks um, I just got to say goodbye big thanks to Andrea on sound and Kira in marketing and thanks as always to our partners in Irish Times Media Solutions so if you like this episode follow us tell your friends listen back to some of the other great episodes you'll find them by typing Irish Times Inside Marketing into your search engine of choice until next time stay safe Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.